chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bikri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the time, set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bikri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the termites. No, there's no termites in there. I'm just making that up. It's the mighty men went out after him and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. And when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at its at his hips, and he was going forward. It fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. And Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted and when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Beerites. So they were gathered together and also went after him or Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah and they cast up a siege mound against the city and they stood by the rampart and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying that they shall surely seek guidance at Abel, and so they would end disputes. 
I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem, and Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was a chief minister under David. For those of you who have been following along in 2 Samuel, you know that there was a rebellion that took place by his son, Absalom. And once the rebellion was through, David, before he returns to Jerusalem, seeks to reconcile this fragile country. And before he even has a chance to make it back to Jerusalem, another revolt breaks out. The fragile unity of, of the nation was holding on by a slim, thin thread and opposition to God's plan and opposition to God's will are always the fruit of sin. And you see, that becomes perhaps the best definition of rebellion. Rebellion is when you refuse and reject the authority that God has put in place. And clearly, the most authoritative thing that we're aware of is that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the ruler. It is the Lord who rules on high. And of course, we know that the Bible is very clear that God has made Jesus both the Messiah and the Lord. Jesus himself has revealed that he will one day judge the nations. And so we see how David deals with rebellion. This time, David will act swiftly in order to minimize the loss of life. And the chapter gives us the story of Sheba's rebellion. And we don't really know a whole lot about this guy. He was a Benjamite. And remember, this is the same tribe that Saul is from. And whether he had a direct relationship to Saul, we're not told. The Bible calls him worthless. As a matter of fact, it says, and there happened to be there a rebel. That word rebel is literally a man of Belial. And that word meant a lot of different things over the history of the Hebrew language. But it meant something that was worthless. But it, it meant way more than that because it spoke of a person's character. It spoke of a person's inward condition. 
And so the groundwork or the seeds of rebellion were sown in the previous chapter between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And again, for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, it's 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 40 through 43. And Sheba is taking advantage of the quarrel. As a matter of fact, one Bible writer says, there continue to be people who will exploit the differences between others for their own advantage. And this is exactly what we find in the circumstance of Sheba's rebellion. The peace is fragile. The nation is barely holding together. And by the way, when families are fragile, when churches are fragile, when nations are fragile, that's when they're at most risk. Exploitation for personal advantage continues everywhere. Now we know that we're to value unity, we're to seek peace, we're to act in faithfulness to God and to the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, we get that, those instructions over and over again in the New Testament. Paul pleads with the believers in, the, in, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, um, basically, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And the reason why Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that is because there is an ongoing problem that human beings face and the ongoing problem is to divide. You know, human beings have been given two strange opposites. The first strange thing that God has given to us is what I call the urge to merge. It's usually between men and women. Guy looks at a gal and a gal looks at a guy. Your heart starts beating and your palms start sweating and, and the magic of chemistry begins to take place. But there's something else. There's more than just the urge to merge. There's, the, the, there's, there's this sense inside of each person to divide for whatever reason. There's this something inside of us that wants to separate from one another. You go to a, a Rockies game and a person will say, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan first and I'm an American second. You know, you divide in your sports teams. You divide over the states that you're in. You divide over political processes. You divide over this. You divide over that. You divide over language. You divide over culture. You divide over, over color. You divide, divide, divide. And all the while... God is trying to draw us together to unite us in a mutual commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great? Can you imagine a home or a church where there were no divisions, where there were no broken relationships, where there was no divorce, where there was no laziness, where there was no lying or stealing or cheating or abuse or lawlessness? That'd be a great place. But guess what? This side of heaven, it's going to be a rare place. 
But there should be pockets of unity that we begin to build. And so the passage will quickly go from the revolt of Sheba in verses 1 and 2 to the return of David to Jerusalem in verse 3. And and, and in order for David to mobilize the army to deal with the rebellion in verses 4 through 22. And then he's going to reconstitute the government in verses 22. Uh, 3 through 26 and so it begins in verse 1 and there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba the son of Bikri a Benjamite he blew a trumpet and he said we have no share in David nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse every man to his tents O Israel now again the Hebrew calls Sheba a man of Belial or a man of the devil And like I said, the Hebrew word means empty, worthless. It actually came to mean a person who was godless or lawless. The New King James Version translates it corrupt in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. The word is also translated perverted in Judges 19, 22. It's, it's translated rebel in 2 Samuel chapter 20. It's, it's uh, translated scoundrel in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 10. It's translated in the plural worthless men in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 22. It's translated worthless rogues in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. What is that? You sort of get the idea. These, this is a person who's not a good person. And by the way, the name of Belial would sometimes be used as a proper name or the personification of evil or of a demon. As a matter of fact, it is a word that even is used to describe Satan himself in Nahum chapter 1 verse 15. And so this causes a lot of Bible teachers to believe that Belial is another name for Satan. And this makes perfect sense because, again, when we think about rebellion, who's the author of rebellion? Who was the first rebel? Yeah. Lucifer. Lucifer becomes Satan when he puts himself in a position of exaltation and he comes to that place where he thinks that he's better than God or that he knows better than God. And so rebellion has its roots in Satan. But also rebellion becomes the method in which Satan works. And so, again, when it says... He blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents. There is a sense in which this cry is almost like a political bumper sticker. We have no cry or we have no share in David is thought to mean we can't be fairly represented by David. David is incapable of giving us our proper share. And remember, the quarrel or the feud goes back to the rightful claims. And so I want you to think about this for just a moment. Remember, David is from the tribe of Judah. The Benjamites and the people of Judah live in the south. The ten tribes live in the north. And over a couple of hundred years, they began to think of themselves as two separate or distinct people groups. As a matter of fact, 
the way that I would ask you to think about it is that some people in the ten northern tribes began to think of David as a foreigner. Now that might be an odd thought for many of you because you think, hey, look, they're all Jews. I mean, what's the big deal? But you have to understand something that over hundreds of years, there is this deep divide and polarization that begins to take place between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And the only thing that I can sort of correlate it to is some of you are familiar with the animosity between the Irish and the English. And you sit there and you go, you're both speaking English. I mean, how different are you? I'm no English man. And the English, of course, if you called an English person an Irishman or an Irishman an Englishman, there's this deep, deep divide. And there was this deep, deep divide here. As a matter of fact, if you read the last chapter, you'll remember that the northern tribes um, were basically getting into this verbal argument with the southern tribes saying, Hey, David is our king. No, David is our king. No, David is our king. But remember, they have no intention of really honoring David because in the end, they really want to exalt themselves. And how do we know it? Because of the rebellion in chapter 20. The northern tribe's response to Sheba's rebellion tells the true story of what's going on inside of their heart. And why is this important for you? Because almost certainly you're going to meet someone who says, I love Jesus. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. I love him as king and I love him as Lord. And then something inside of their heart betrays a deep rebellion. No, I prayed a prayer. No, I went to church. No, I read my Bible. Then why are you acting so completely detached from God or so completely detached from Jesus? What's going on inside of you? Now, if you're honest, and you don't have to be honest, but I would just encourage you to try to be. I suspect that each person within the sound of my voice has had at least about with rebellion. That there was an eruption that took place inside of your heart and the Lord Jesus Christ said, I want you to do this and you go, no. I need you to do this. No. I need you to say this. No. I I need you to pray this. No. I need you to give this. No. And it may have lasted for a moment. It may have lasted for a week. It may have lasted for a month. It may have lasted for a year. But for the person who says, I love Jesus, and they have no intention of obeying him whatsoever, almost certainly that's evidence of something going on inside of our hearts. And that's what we see going on here. There is a a deep divide, a great, huge chasm between the people who want to honor David, but they deny his right to rule. And that's exactly what's taking place. Sheba is, in effect, denying David's right to rule over him or any of the tribes of Israel. (laughs) 
It kind of reminds me of people who live in Oregon or Washington and how they feel about people from California. If you've ever driven up that way and they go, if you're from California, just turn around and go back. That was the deep divide that was taking place here. There are people in the South that still remember the Northern War of Aggression. How unreliable is the human heart? How foolish we are when we refuse to trust David's son as Lord and Savior. You know, as a matter of fact, even in our own country, when the smaller states wondered how they would be represented in the new government, there were, as you can imagine, very large states and there were very small states and the large states seemed to have all the representation and the small states were wondering how can we have equal representation in a new government and they became so frustrated that literally the smaller states walked out of the Constitutional Congress until Benjamin Franklin said, you know what, we started with prayer and we've forgotten prayer. If we're going to survive, we're going to have to pray. And Benjamin Franklin began to pray. And the whole group began to pray. And guess what? Part of the reason why each state has two senators, no matter how big or how small, was the wisdom that began to emerge from that prayer meeting. They tried to figure out a way. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. They tried to figure out a way to stay together instead of be pulled apart. And the same is true in families and in the body of Christ. That we have to think of a way to stay together instead of pull apart. So think about what is happening in the text. When, when Sheba says, we have no share in David, it's a slogan. Sort of like in the 60s when I was growing up, the country was deeply divided and we used to say... Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. Makes for a clever saying, doesn't it? But that's the whole point. Sometimes we default to sloganeering and bumper sticker mentality. And that's exactly what was taking place in this rebellion. We have no share in David. By the way... G. Campbell Morgan once wrote that injustice is never corrected by a yet deeper wrong. You will never make injustice go away by being unjust towards other people. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so the expression, every man to his tent, means... Hey, guess what? We're not going to make ourselves king. We're not going to crown David king. We don't plan to attack David. How fickle and how false the people are. And no sooner had they turned their love and their loyalty back to David, they turned around and changed again. Isn't this exactly how people are? People come to church. I'm back. Wait a minute, no, I'm gone. I'm back again. 
I'm gone again. You see, people see Jesus like a revolving door. He's there if you need him. And don't get me wrong, if you've left and come back, and left and come back, and left and come back, (laughs) I'm happy you're here. But here's the truth. When you get right with God, when you want partnership and fellowship with God, but you no sooner go back to your worthless friends and your worthless circumstances, then what you do is you place yourself in a position of rebellion. The Bible gives ample warning against jealousy and hatred and bitterness and anger and accusations. And again, like so many people, stupid sheep unwittingly submit to a mob instinct. And so the moment that Sheba says, we have no share in David, everyone back to the tent, all 10 tribes go, yeah. And then they left. <laughs> we have to avoid the temptation to rally to the cause of each and every person who wants to divide a family or who wants to divide a church or who, who wants to divide a nation. We have to be thoughtful and careful. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, it says, For you are still carnal, for where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? And so rivalry and jealousy and envy and discontentment become the the ingredients that destroy homes and destroy churches. But we as God's people are called to be peacemakers in the family of God. It was Philip Keller who wrote, we are expected to be faithful in the line of duty, diligent in bringing about unity and goodwill, unquote. I like that. We don't have to sacrifice truth or love. There's something inside human beings that divide. And by the way, the Bible gives us a mechanism for unity and the unity is in the gospel of Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called in lowliness and gentleness with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is important because we don't manufacture the unity. We don't create the unity. We don't generate the unity. The Holy Spirit does. It's the Holy Spirit who generates the unity based on what Jesus has done. God demonstrated his love to you and to me. God demonstrated forgiveness to you and to me. God demonstrated patience to you and to me. Primarily because 
we're rebels at heart. There's something inside of us that wants to defy God and his plan and his purpose. And that's why Paul writes and he says, endeavor to maintain the unity. What we do is we keep what he's created. And the men of Judah had a choice. Are they going to remain loyal to the king? Or are they going to go with the other tribes? And the reason why this all becomes so very, very important to you, because life really is divided into two great camps. I know I keep saying it, Italian people and people who wish they were, but those aren't the two great camps. The the two great camps are the people who want to embrace Jesus and remain loyal to Jesus. And then those people who, for whatever reason, find themselves drawn away. From the love and the lordship of Jesus. And thank God. Thank God that some decided to remain loyal to the king. Look at verse 3. It says, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go into them, so they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now remember... Those of you who are unfamiliar with the text, when Absalom rebelled, David left the ten concubines to care for the household. In front of the entire nation, Absalom sexually assaulted these women, publicly humiliated them. And so when David comes back, he takes them into seclusion and he supports them. Now, even though David supports them, think about what's happened here. They're sentenced to live a life of solitary singleness, aren't they? What did they do wrong? Here's what happened to them. They were humiliated and they were abused. So David tries to seek and establish some kind of stability in his own house. And due to their suffering, they needed special attention. And some might argue that cutting them off from affection and childbearing is an act of cruelty. Some will argue that that David makes a physical and a financial provision for the rest of their life, but that's not enough. Clearly, we're to assist the needy and the suffering. We live in a world of sexual brokenness. We live in a world where people have been exploited and they have been abused. In the ancient world, as well as parts of the modern world, women are often treated in a crude and cruel manner. And when a husband divorces his wife and leaves his children, we know that statistics demonstrate that about 80% of the women are worse off. And a fleeing husband is invariably better off. Not always, but often. Some people believe the Old Testament times or the Bible times were ideal times. But from a cultural standpoint, that's not true. Women were often the object of abuse and mistreatment and enslavement. Here's the big question. Are women still abused, mistreated, and enslaved? What do you think the answer is? I think the answer is yes. 
We sometimes forget how far the gospel has brought Western civilization and the treatment of women and how without Jesus in the gospel, things would be way worse. Here's the truth. Jesus sets people free. You know, for our vacation Bible school, the, the ongoing theme was Jesus, the word of God changes people's lives and they would go, go! So why does David isolate them and seclude them? You know, Adam Clark gives maybe the best answer that I read. He wrote, quote, he could not well divorce them. He couldn't punish them as they were not in the transgression. He couldn't be familiar with them because they had been defiled by his son and to have married them off to other men would have probably put the state in a dangerous position. So what are you saying? What are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Sin is horrible and terrible, isn't it? Sin is horrible and it's terrible and sometimes it has long-lasting effects, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute. If everybody does what's right and, and there's forgiveness and restoration, why can't things be the way that they were? Here's the big question. Did these women suffer from David's sin? The answer is yes. Did they suffer from Absalom's sin? The answer is yes. I wish to God that every person who has ever suffered because of my rebellion and wickedness, that it didn't have to be that way. But it's not true. My wickedness and my rebellion and my sin has awful consequences. And so does yours. If ever there was a reason, if ever there was a sufficient motivation to do what's right, you would think that that would be it in and of itself. When you say, look, if I embark in that direction, it's going to mean disaster for my family. It's going to mean disaster for the church. It's going to mean disaster for my children. The same is true for you. And it's in that context. It says in verse 4, And the king said to Amasa, Now remember, he's been made the new commander of the army. Joab has lost his job. Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days. Be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed to him. Now with the appointment of Amasa, the armies of Judah were almost like a militia force, well-meaning civilians instead of battle-seasoned warriors. And again, what David is trying to do is he's trying to avoid the mistake that his own son had made with him. Remember, if Absalom would have pursued David right when he was fleeing from the city and destroyed them, guess what? He would have been successful. And David understands something. David understands that unless he deals with this problem, unless he acts quickly, Sheba will be able to strengthen his position of rebellion, prolong the rebellion, and more and more people are going to be hurt. So he has to deal with it. And so 
David says to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. You have to understand something. What's happening here is he's disobeyed David's orders. So David has now made Abishai in charge of the troops. And he is giving him orders. Take your Lord's servants, pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities. And the, the group that's leading the charge is David's secret service. So Joab's men with the Carathites, the Pelathites, and all the mighty men went after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Here's the, here's the image. Sheba's the rabbit, and these guys are the dogs. He's the rabbit, they're the dogs, and guess what's going to happen? They're going to hunt him down. That's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to hunt him down and there's going to be no place for him to hide. And it says in verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, which is to the north, by the way, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in a sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Now, now again, this gives the appearance that he's unarmed. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, that might seem a little odd to most of you. What do you mean? In the ancient culture of Israel, it was an act of friendship. It was an act of, what's the word I'm looking for? transparency and vulnerability. Now, again, there's nothing weird happening at that point, although you might think, you know, for one guy to reach out to another guy and grab his beard and kiss him, that just doesn't sound right. But in this culture and society, it wasn't unusual for men to demonstrate affection for one another in ways that are kind of different from our culture and society. I have a friend who's the pastor of, uh, <laughs> of Calvary Chapel in Bangor, Maine. His name is Ken Graves, and he's got this great big voice. And Ken Graves is about six foot two, and he's a lumberjack from Maine. And he's about as big and as, you know, if you've ever seen the brawny towel commercial, that's Ken Graves. And then I have a, I have a friend named Raul Reese who happens to have a black belt in... Uh, in Kung Fu, and he's pretty much a killer. And one, at one conference, my friend Raul Reese takes Ken Graves, and he goes, he, I can't believe, man, the most amazing thing happened. This guy put some perfume on my, on my neck, man, and he just came out of nowhere, and he just started spraying me, man. I can't even believe he did that. And he goes, here, smell. And Ken Graves leaned over to smell, and Raul kissed him right on the cheek. And Ken rose up and he goes, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. (laughs) These are two big brawny guys. And Amasa, when he sees the sword slip, he doesn't see Joab's sword coming. And he cuts him in the stomach and his entrails poured out. If you're wondering... Why did Joab murder Amasa? Well, again, David may 
complain about the sons of Zariah, the Old Testament version of the sons of thunder. But he will continue to use them because they're mean and they get the job done. David continues to act in what seems like a contradictory relationship, sort of like politicians today, who decry the police department, who decry the military. But when things are bad, when things are out of order, and you need order, you go to the police, you go to the military. So what can we say about public leaders who publicly criticize the military and publicly criticize the police department, but privately encourage them? Hey, our generation isn't the first and won't be the last to practice hypocrisy. David will deploy the royal guard and using deception, Joab will murder Amasa. Now, again, you might think that this is a rough way to lose your job, But that's exactly what happens. He loses his job. And he doesn't strike him again. He dies a very slow and painful death. Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow him. And guess what? He's pulled to the side of the road. They throw a blanket over him. He bleeds to death. Because it's sort of like a rubbernecking situation where everybody comes along and goes, Oh, Amasa's dead. Oh, back to the war. And that's what happens. And so in verse 13, they remove him from the highway. In verse 14, it says, And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Barites, so they were gathered together. The idea is they're going from province to province and place to place to find the rebel. Then they come, they besiege him in Abel at Beth Makkah, and they cast a mound This is a siege mound against the city, and they stood by the rampart. Joab batters the wall to throw it down. And then a wise woman comes out of the city. Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with him. Now, again, they go through the ten northern tribes. They come, if you've got a map on the back of your Bible, they come to the very edge of Israeli territory to a fortified city called Abel. Now, this city was famous in those days for giving people good advice. You know how certain cities are famous for certain things, like Dodge City is famous for gunfights, yeah. Tombstone is famous for the gunfight at the OK Corral. Denver is famous for Who knows? You guys, go, you guys are from here and you should know this. It's famous for being the Mile High City. Now, Abel was famous for having wise people. Apparently, people would come from all over in order to get information. And I'm sure that Sheba went there to try to escape the relentless brothers who are hounding him from town to town. He's trying to get on advice. So he shows up at Abel and he goes, this place is famous for good advice. Here's what I want to know. How am I going to survive this? How am I going to come out of this alive? And of course, he's not going to come out of it alive because it's too late. 
Joab, now remember Joab, our friend Joab here. He is a murderer, it is true. But Joab had defeated Jerusalem. Joab had defeated Rabbah. Now what Jerusalem and Rabbah have in common is that they're both capital cities with huge armies and heavy fortifications. He has fought seasoned armies with impressive fortifications. And so this place is going to be a piece of cake. And so basically, this guy's going to die. And so when they besiege it, they build a siege mound, which is a a hill of dirt, and they begin to storm the walls. Now remember that Joab's no longer the commander of the armies. He's lost his commission from the king. But again, I need you to understand at least a few things here. Joab is still loyal to David. Joab is still loyal to the kingdom. Joab is still loyal to the nation. Joab knew that Sheba's death would strengthen the nation, unify the people, and put down the rebellion. I'm going to suggest to you that he doesn't even think at this point that he may get his old command back. He may not get his old job back. But we also know that he can be brutal. He has a keen sense of loyalty and devotion. Now, when I'm talking about Joab and you see him cut a person's guts out and still remain fiercely loyal to the king, you might ask, how can a person be so different? How can you have a combination of such great characteristics and such terrifying characteristics? Let me just be very clear to you that apart from the grace of God and apart from the mercy of God and apart from his love and the presence of Jesus, each and every one of us are capable of the worst kind of wickedness imaginable. And so is Joab. And so, (laughs) they come out. And they besiege the city. And the wise woman comes out to negotiate the peace in verse 16. And like Abigail who pleaded with David not to kill her stupid husband Nabal. This woman pleads for Joab to spare the city and its inhabitants. And what's interesting is that Joab is willing to talk with her. And clearly she's a wise woman. She's able to come out and plead her case And make peace in a difficult situation. And I suspect that she looked like every Jewish mother everywhere. And again, when a Jewish mother is making an appeal, it's very hard to resist the Jewish mother making the appeal. By the way, that is wisdom. When you're able to plead a cause and make peace in a difficult situation, that really becomes one of the definitions of of wisdom. It's one thing... To make a deal. It's another thing to get the head. Now I'm sure Sheba, when she goes, hey look, in order to make all of this problem go away, what do we need to do? Well, I need to have Sheba. Now, when the wise woman goes to Sheba, do you suppose Sheba's going, look, we took a vote and all of us voted that we're going to cut your head off. And we're going to throw it over the wall and we're going to give it to Joab. Do you suppose that Sheba was thinking, what if, I, what if I say no? Do you think he willingly gave up his head? What's your guts tell you? 
Yeah, your guts tell you no. Most people who initiate rebellion and continue in rebellion and live in rebellion and survive in rebellion, they don't want to go away. And sometimes you have to deal brutally and dramatically with them. With few allies and fewer options, the people say, we're going to kill this guy. And by the way, people, mobs don't always do what's right unless there's strong, rational leadership. When you get a bunch of people together, they don't always make the best choice. One Bible writer says, we can make a spiritual analogy out of Sheba, his rebellion and his refuge in the city of Abel. Every man's breast is a city enclosed. Every sin is a traitor that lurks within those walls. God calls for Sheba's head. Neither has any quarrel for us as a person, but for our sin. If we love the head of our traitor above the life of our soul, we shall justly perish in the vengeance. The point that he's trying to make is, if it's true that each person in their heart harbors a bit of rebellion and it's God's plan and it's God's purpose. He doesn't want to kill you and he doesn't want to destroy your family and he doesn't want to ruin your future. He just wants the rebellion to end. But sometimes you as a Christian have to do exactly that which the traitor doesn't want to have done. You have to cut off the head of the traitor. And the rebellion has to disappear. If there is some wickedness, if there is some disobedience, if there is some rebellion inside of your heart and inside of your life, inside of your marriage, inside of your family, inside of your church, here's what the Bible wants us to do. Deal with it dramatically, fundamentally. Get rid of it. Why? Because God is interested in the health of your family and in the health of your church and in the health of your nation. That's the idea. And Joab, well, he gets his old job back. It says, Then the woman in her wisdom went to the people. They cut off his head. They threw it over the wall. Verse 23, And Joab went over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was uh, over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. That means he's in charge of the secret service. Adoram was in charge of the revenue. This means he's sort of like the treasury guy. He's the Tim Geithner of the ancient world. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilut, was the recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. Ira, the Jerite, was the chief minister. And so what's happening is he's reconstituting the government. Joab gets his job back. Benaiah is the enforcer in charge of David's Mossad, the ancient secret service. He becomes once again in charge of the personal bodyguard of the king. And by the way, now think about this. One rebellion, Absalom. Two rebellion, Sheba. When you've had two rebellions in a row, do you think you're going to reinforce the safety and the security of the, of the head of state? The answer is yes. And so Jehoshaphat is the recorder or the record keeper. Zadok and Abiathar are still the priests. Ira the Jairite, he becomes sort of like the head of the administration. Now, why is this important for us? It's important for this reason. 
when David is restored to the throne, David's job is to assemble and lead an effective team into the future. And you see, that's one of the things that we do. It's once you've dealt with these issues, you assemble and you lead an effective team that's going to take you into the future. Now, by the way, Ira the Jerethite becomes like the chief of staff. I would even go so far as to say when it, when it refers to him as the chief minister under David, I suspect that it means chaplain. Now, do you guys know what a chaplain is? A chaplain is a person who provides ministry and support. Now, this is interesting to me because I happen to be a chaplain. I'm a chaplain for the police department. I'm a chaplain for the the FBI. And part of my job is to pray for, minister to, and provide support for the law enforcement community. Now, David, he's had severe problems, no doubt about it. But would you characterize David as a person who, who loves the Lord? I would too. Would you characterize him as a person who is deeply devoted to the Lord? I would. Have you ever read the Psalms of David? Have you ever read them for your devotions? I have. I thought about this when I read this verse. How do you provide ministry support for a person who provides ministry support? Here is a man who knows God and loves God, who's had good times and bad times, difficult times, sorrowful times. You have been with us as we've gone through this roller coaster ride called David's life. But Ira is going to minister to David. He's going to provide prayer and support. He is going to be an anchor in which to pray with, be with, and support. And this becomes important because no matter if you're a pastor, no matter if you're a ministry leader, no matter if you're famous or not so famous, it reminds me of something, that no matter what position you find yourself in life, we all need support and encouragement and mutual ministry. Even if you've written parts of the Bible. And so guess what? You never come to a place of holiness and spiritual authority where there aren't times when you need someone to pray with you, to be with you, to support you, to encourage you. You know, one of the ways that you have to deal with rebellion is you have to be uncompromising. Some people might even view what you've done as brutal. But there's a reason why the Bible doesn't want you to cooperate with rebellion. It's because it sets not only a bad precedent, but it makes lawful authority and genuine leadership impossible. Ultimately, ultimately we're all in submission to God. We are all in submission to the headship 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, and he says, God the Father is the head of Jesus, and Jesus is the head of the church. And we, the Bible says, are many, joined and fitted together in submission to the head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? When are we least likely to be divisive? It's when we're submitted to the headship of Jesus. When we decide to do what Jesus would have us to do. When we recognize and submit to his glorious authority. You know what's wonderful about submitting to the lordship of Jesus? He's incapable of making a mistake. I wish the worst is over for David. But he has a few more difficult trials before we come to the end of his life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would seriously learn from the lessons that we're taught in the Bible. Lord, we pray that we would read it not just simply as an interesting story, but of the reality that it provides principles for us to live by. That, Lord, we can glean on how to walk with you and live in peace. Lord, we live in such a wicked world and we live in a world that is so deeply divided. But, Lord, we pray that we would be peacemakers. Lord, we pray that we would look for reasons to stay together instead of be apart. And so again, Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.